Welcome back, Brown Girls. Ashanti here, the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, the one-stop shop podcast for women of color who want to hear and talk about the world of politics. As we continue with our collaboration with She the People, we are highlighting women from their 20 women of color to watch in 2020 list. These are all barrier-breaking women who are changing the political landscape this year and beyond. Meet Kajwa Va, the co-founder and co-executive director of Freedom Inc., an organization working with low to no income communities of color that focuses on ending violence against women and youth. Freedom Inc.'s model is all about meeting people's basic needs. I am really excited to talk to you today, so let's dive right in. One of the things that you say is that you are a strong believer that those who are most deeply impacted must be at the forefront of the movement. What made you want to get involved and do the work that you're doing today? So I came to this country as a refugee child. And when we came to this country, um, growing up, we had a lot of different organizations that helped us to resettle as refugees. And as a teenager, I quickly realized that those organizations and other mainstream organizations really didn't have what I needed uh, to become my full self. And then I was also living through a lot of like strict gender roles within my own family. Uh, typically, one of the examples I always give is um, during that time, we would have all the women would do the cooking and the men would eat first. And then, you know, I saw that as a pattern. And even at 14, 15, I didn't really know uh, what I was experiencing, didn't have language for gender injustice, but I, I felt it and I felt what, how unjust that felt. Um, and so I just remembering myself like doing things to offset that. For example, you know, I use this example a lot, but uh, when we would have family feasts or family ga- uh, gatherings, I would steal a plate and go into the kitchen and eat first. And, you know, it became this like symbolic way of like equalizing out <laughs> the injustice. So I use that example a lot because even as a young teen, not, not having terminology, not having analysis, I knew what injustice felt like. And so that was my way of equalizing out uh, the injustice that I felt. And I wasn't doing it only for myself, but I was like, I'm eating for my mom, for my sisters, for my aunties, and like really feeling that. And so at a very young age, um, I felt like I needed to create something for myself, even without terminology, like having that understanding. And then on top of that, like I grew up always thinking not really looking for leaders and leadership outside of myself and my family, because there was none. Like, it wasn't like I could look up uh, to, because our community was so new in the U.S., so it wasn't like I could look up and find a a Hmong woman leader that I can look up to and be like, oh, I want to be like her. My examples of strong female leadership was my mom and, and the aunties around me, but even then, they didn't have opportunities for the analysis, the feminist analysis, and, and how to live out their feminist self. They were really strong, but I didn't have that. I always knew like, that I wanted to create uh, an organization or um, a place for myself where I wanted to live in. Like, What would a world um, that I want to live in look like? And so this whole like most impacted really came from this idea of basically like, who knows best 
how to serve and how to find solutions for their own problems. So I really always thought that the best solutions came from within the people struggling, um, myself at that time, and that we were our best um, resources and that if people just invested in us instead of coming to save us, um, that we would come up with the best solutions. And so that really came, I mean, of course, as I got older and, and did movement work, as you all know, that's one of the cores to building uh, grassroots feminist movements is that those most impacted must lead. But I think I always felt like the solutions and the resources and the um, I, uh, that we had it within our own community and we had it within our own selves and that we had the best solutions. And so I think even like I said, without the terminology and the analysis, like I always knew that the solutions would come from the community and the people struggling the most because we know um, what it uh, what we need to to be free. And that also like translate into how I do my gender justice work or domestic violence work. Sitting here listening to you talk and I was doing a interview yesterday with other women and this subject came up about girls confidence and how at young ages you know girls really kind of do need to see role models in order to say oh I can do that oh I can walk in that space and you didn't have that but now you're the role model that you didn't have when you were growing up and I just think that is so fabulous I'm just in awe of everything that you just said thank you I agree. I mean, I think when I look back, um, not having somebody to role model after, um, really, I think that the the it was the women around me. And people say that. And, you know, a lot of people say that and then it becomes cliche kind of. But uh, absolutely, like, I think my feminism really stemmed from um, the fact that you had were war re, like refugee survivors uh, were survivors of war, refugee camps and assimilation um, of the U.S. And looking at these women and looking at these women who were never allowed to to practice like the traditional roles and leadership within the community, but having survived war and having um, one third of your population like killed off and then having to start over again. I think I looked at my mom and I saw my mom as my, and a, a lot of communities uh, have this too, but I saw my mom as my mom and my dad and the holder of like all that was Hmong, all that was me. And so I really looked at her, even though she didn't have the analysis, like looked at her ability to, to survive and her ability to lead us even though we grew up in such uh, strict uh, cultures that limited how how and what women could do and be, that because of war, all of that was flipped and she became everything for me. And so I think that like really played such a key role in what I thought I was able to do and in, in my confidence, because I didn't see any other way but to, to survive and to to hold on to history and family and community the way that she did. That is so beautiful. I do want to move on and talk about the work that you're doing today. You are the co-founder and co-executive director of Freedom Inc. Listeners is an organization that's working with low to no income communities of color, and it focuses on ending violence against women and youth. 
we are in the middle of the COVID pandemic and we are seeing an increase in domestic violence. There's really a lot of women leaders who are the first to speak up when we said, oh, we'll just have everyone stay at home because you're safer at home. But we know that home is really not safe for a lot of people. So can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you're doing around this issue and how our listeners can support women and youth who are enduring domestic violence during this time? So yes, definitely. Uh, When the pandemic uh, stay at home policies came into play, a lot of people, um, I'm sure at first it's exciting because you're like, oh, okay. I mean, of course the pandemic is horrible. But people are saying you get to be home and everybody's home all day long. And then I think for those of us who've always known that home isn't and hasn't been the safest for many, many reasons and for many people, um, we quickly sprung into action and tried to keep things um, as normal as we could for our our clients. And then we like quickly started to assess what it is that they were going to need. And so all of my staffs called everybody that we had work, worked with or that uh, we have like weekly support groups for women and girls and queer folks who are experiencing domestic violence, sexual assault. And so what we did was we called everyone that uh, continued or that was coming to our support groups and we asked what their needs were and we asked if they were safe. So number one, like reaching out to our base and asking if they were safe. And then number two, um, realizing that even if they were safe or weren't safe, that during this time, people are not moving in and out. But those that actually have to leave their home during this pandemic are going to still leave. And so it wasn't like we all could just stay home and not do anything. If somebody actually needed to find um, emergency shelter, that our advocates actually still had to work and find emergency shelter. So it wasn't like you could just stay home and not do anything. We would have to put up uh, women and children and their families into hotels or still find uh, housing for them. And then the other uh, thing that we thought about was if the wives or, or the mothers, um, in this case, or partners, uh, were in uh, living and surviving domestic violence, we then also assumed that the children would also be surviving some sort of violence at home. And so we uh, quickly started up a youth helpline um, so that young people can reach out because uh, we often know that it's not enough to just talk to the um, adults um, who are being harmed in the family, but that teens also needed a place to report and to also reach out for help if they needed that. On top of that, we also knew that mothers and um, caretakers and folks in the household who were taking care of children would need additional support just because what we were seeing with a lot of our own staffs who had children, that this distance learning um, was spotlighting a lot of the failures that the uh, school district, our kids of color not being able to read to this grade level or that grade level really was spotlighted during the distance learning. Because then you had uh, teachers who were sending out like 10 emails. And what 10-year-old, what 9-year-old, what parents who don't read and write English is going to look at those emails? And so we quickly saw all the all the holes in, in how our people weren't learning or learning. 
And so I think that that's been one of the most devastating things to try to figure out. And we're still trying to figure out how, how are we going to, number one, close that gap in distance learning or in learning uh, for our kids so that when they return in the fall, they can at least catch up a little bit. And then number two, how do we push back and say this is actually not distance learning, that there has to be another uh, another way for kids to learn and to, to be that their learning has to be different. Um, and so, but I'm, I'm bringing that up because in addition to the violence that the kids are experiencing at home or the, the um, domestic violence and sexual assault that they're experiencing, like we also know that now they're being pressured to learn on their own. Um, so all of these things, um, I think, came quickly came into our minds and ca- came into play, and then we're trying to figure that out. In addition to that, then you have like the women who are and caretakers who are at home, but are providers for the family. And a lot of them are essential workers. And so having to leave and, and you know, uh, we have a lot of families with mixed families, with adults who are not their biological relatives in the household. And so really having to, to figure out what safety planning looks like for kids who are at home. Of course, you all know, like increases um, sexual assault. And so we all also had to take that into consideration. So, you know, that we've learned and that we're learning about the pandemic is that number one, the uh, domestic violence does not stop just because the pandemic is here and all of a sudden abusers or perpetrators are saying, wow, you know, there's a global pandemic. No, uh, domestic violence and sexual assault continue to happen in, in, in many homes. Uh, there's more access. And then in many uh, homes that are struggling financially, um, and emotionally without mental health uh, services, it it has spotlighted all the reasons why there is um, more domestic violence. But then um, because of um, what's happening, there's less resources to support the, the new changes in, in um, helping us secure safety and um, helping us decrease the, the stressors that are increasing domestic violence. Thank you so much for sharing that information. No, it's really important for us to talk about and you really laying out the reality that again home isn't safe and just really thank you for all the work that you're doing to help people during this time there is no doubt that our democracy works better when more people participate in civic life and when our campaigns and nonprofits are powered by the people they serve that's why ActBlue's online fundraising platform, which makes it possible for anyone to build a grassroots campaign or movement and give donors an easy and secure way to support their candidates and causes, is so incredible. ActBlue is a fundraising platform and nonprofit organization that makes it easy to give and to make your voice heard. They help thousands of democratic campaigns, progressive organizations, and nonprofits build people-powered movements. Small dollar donors are more powerful than any mega donor. If you're a candidate organization ready to build your grassroots fundraising program, go to actbluesetup.com. Actblue's sponsorship of the Brown Girls Guide does not imply support for any candidate or committee. Working from home? Are you remote learning? Stay healthy, focused, and energized with fresh, delicious meals delivered straight to your door from Saqqara. Grocery stores are crowded and picked over. You can stay home, stay healthy, and strengthen your immunity with fresh, delicious meals delivered straight to your door from Saqqara. 
Sakara is a nutrition company that believes wellness begins with what you eat. Their signature nutrition program brings the transformational power of plant nutrition to your home in the form of fresh, plant-rich, ready-to-eat meals. Made with organic ingredients and powerful superfoods, each meal is expertly designed to boost immunity, improve energy, support gut health and digestion, and get skin glowing. From hearty salads and nutrient-dense granolas to savory flatbreads and seasonal fruit parfaits, their ever-changing menu of creative, chef-crafted meals makes clean eating delicious. All of Sakara's meals are 100% plant-based, gluten-free, dairy-free, and non-GMO. In addition to their delicious meals, Sakara also offers daily essentials like supplements and herbal teas to complete your wellness routine and support overall health and vitality. To boost immunity, try their best-selling daily probiotic blend or detox water drops with chlorophyll. And right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their order when they go to sakara.com slash BGG or enter code BGG at checkout. That's Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash BGG to get 20% off your order. Sakara.com slash BGG. want to keep with the topic of COVID and unfortunately violence. We are seeing a lot of anti-Asian sentiment and racism. What advice do you have for our listeners about how they can stand with the AAPI community during this time? One of the things that I think this is really interesting is that you have, if you really think about the Asian American community, you have such a huge spectrum of who is in that community, um, and that we are Asians, but there are so many different ethnic groups within the Asian diaspora. And so you have, um, and this is just an example of like, you have those who are recent refugees, who are immigrants, and you have then you have people who've been here for three, four generations. And then you have people who are doing really well academically and um, economically, and then you have people who are struggling. So from uh, East Asian or uh, families who've been here for three or four generations to um, who are often propped up as the, your my, model minority. Um, and then you have your Southeast Asian folks like Cambodians, Laotians, Hmong folks, Vietnamese folks, who uh, Cambodian Hmong folks are struggling a lot. Um, and their demographics look a lot like uh, Latinos and um, African-Americans who are struggling also in this country. And so what we've been seeing during the pandemic and the increase in anti-Asian hate crimes and um, sentiments is I think that we, we've always had people who saw us as foreigners and others. But I think that um, I often say this, when you have the most powerful person in the U.S., um, condoning um, and enticing anti-Asian violence, then it's basically um, pretty much like an open season uh, for anybody to, to, it's acceptable for anybody to do that. And so I think that I often say, I think we need to put blame where blame fits. It's, it's not so much the people who 
are having a hard time and trying to figure things out that we can look towards and say, of course, you know, we don't want any violence against our community and we have to work that out. And anybody who causes violence against anybody should be held accountable. How do we hold the most powerful person in the U.S. who's condoned um, violence against us accountable? And I think that you, we, we, we need to look at that because people um, are trying to place blame and, and it's easy to place blame on the people who you live next to, people who you are in community with, who are causing you harm. But it's those who have leadership and power um, to stop the, um, and influence the anti-Asian violence who, are, who continue to be silent. And um, I mean, in this case, 45 who condones it and actually taunts um, our community by um, publicly uh, taunting um, Asian Americans as like the Chinese virus. Or um, I think just a couple of days ago with him asking an Asian American um, reporter that was uh, at his briefing to ask questions that she was asking him to ask those questions of China as if she has a personal relationship to China. I don't watch his press briefings because I need to keep my blood pressure low, but I did see the clip and my mouth was just open at just not only the blatant disrespect, but just the blatant racism that was directed at her. And what we're seeing on the ground here in the Midwest or in Wisconsin is because Hmong, uh, Hmong folks are the largest population of Asian Americans is that a lot of the hate crimes are directed towards our community. So what we're finding in this time is, and you know, depending on what's happening in the world and depending on who the U.S. is upset with, this is not a new phenomenon and this is not a new theory that anybody who, in any Asian country that the U.S. is upset with or at war with, Asian Americans become that population. And so um, during the Vietnam War, everybody was Vietnamese. Um, now everybody, no matter what you look like, um, if you look Asian, uh, you're Chinese. And so here in the Midwest, what we're seeing is uh, a lot of like anti-Asian sentiments of um, going to grocery stores and people blaming you for the coronavirus, people telling you to get out or people uh, are physically violent towards our elders or our communities. And so we've seen a rise in that. And thank God that our most the majority of our elders and, and our vulnerable populations are not out and about. But I think that with uh with ethnic or with racism, I think even if it doesn't happen to you, your body and your being feels this collective pain and collective experience of racism. And so I feel like a lot of people are also going through that, which adds to mental health wellnesses, which adds to to emotional trauma. Um you know, so it's not uh, it's not unlike many other communities of color who've experienced genocide and trauma and racism. But I can tell you that that is something that collectively we're all experiencing at this moment. Thank you so much for sharing that. And yes, the times that we are living in with this man can't wait for him to go away. One of the things that we saw at the beginning was that these videos of of violence enacted on Asian Americans, predominantly what was circulating in social media were these videos of uh, black people causing harm to Asian people. And so we quickly put out a 
a request for, in our community to stop circulating those videos uh, because one, it doesn't reflect the anti-Asian violence that we've experienced in this country. The majority of our vi the violence against Asian Americans has not come from Black Americans, number one. Number two, um, I refuse to, to silently allow people who never post anything positive um, about Black people to then all of a sudden be posting. The only thing they post about Black people are these videos, do you know? And so what that sends to the community is that in already um, sending and, and contributing to a message that Black people are inherently violent, which is not true. And so holding our community accountable for what they post and how, how they need to be responsible for those videos. And then also like really putting blame where blame should go, which is to people who have power and privilege, who are holding out on us, who are living out this capitalistic um, uh, uh, benefits of the capitalistic world that we're in, who get to sit at their mansions and, and point fingers at us and blame us for the pandemic, but uh, hold no responsibility for how they are um, uh, uh, condoning anti-Asian violence against us. And then also, number three, helping my community to understand that the, of course, violence, the physical violence is um, equally harm, uh, harmful. But look at the policies of this country. Look at what they've done uh, to bring us here. And look at um, how systematic racism impacts us in such a different way and that like without understanding all of these things, it's too easy to blame a community that is already blamed for, for many, many things. And so like really helping to stop the anti-blackness. And so like really looking at where Asians fall in, in line with white supremacy and how we uphold white supremacy. And that, of course, nobody should cause harm to us, but also understanding um, the larger role of white supremacy and anti-Asian violence. Really want to thank you for saying that. I've been participating in a lot of the webinars about how we can support our AAPI sisters and brothers during this time. And one of the things that I love from many of the webinars is this topic does come up, is how can we stand together as communities that are facing violence, discrimination, and how a lot of people do want to pit us against one another when we're all facing the same horrific treatment. And I, again, I want to thank you for saying that because I am tearing up a little bit, which you said really spoke to my soul because it is very easy just to immediately increase anti-Blackness. And that's something I tell people all the time. There's racism and discrimination, and then there's anti-Blackness, which is completely in its own field. And a lot of people will use these times just to continue to make Black people out to be whatever they want to describe us as historically, just violent people, uneducated people, just, you know, menace to society. But I do think one of the positive things that will come out of this time is how the Black community and the AAPI community do strengthen our relationships. Definitely. I support that. I think this is the time for Asian Americans to lean into being more Asian Americans um, and not lean into white supremacy and be used as pawns in this game against each other. Thank you. 
So I want to move on. Pew Research just reported that Asian Americans are the fastest growing segment of eligible voters out of the major racial and ethnic groups in the U.S. So what they're saying is more than 11 million Asian Americans will be able to vote this year, making up nearly 5% of the nation's eligible voters. So another goal of yours is to reach 10,000 voters and get more Southeast Asian women elected to office which the listeners know I love, I'm all about, that's my day job. So tell us a little bit more about your work in this area. Yes. So, you know, um, I have a great team of um, community builders, uh, power builders, which is our civic engagement team. And we, I think that 10,000 people can be reached in many different ways. And prior to the pandemic, what we had been doing was going into communities where people typically don't believe there are voters. Um, And so these are poor black and brown communities, immigrant communities. And really, we were just canvassing these communities to, to have conversations and to make sure that they were aware that there was an election and to to help people register. And what we found was that many of them said to us that they had never been approached and they had never been, no one's ever talked to them about voting. No one's ever talked to them about being civically engaged. And so what I found is our strategy here is to talk to people that look like us, that people never thought would go out and vote and would uh, participate civically and that people didn't pay attention to and, and wasn't interested in um getting their vote and, and wasn't interested in making sure that they their voices were heard. And so we have such a great team that um, we've been able to do that. And some of the other things, um, going back to uh, what we've learned here in the state of Wisconsin, is that we may not have people of color in numbers because our population, um, I mean, Wisconsin is predominantly white. And so we've learned to work with allies, white allies, but we've also learned to work across different ethnic groups and different racial groups to come together. Uh, We have statewide, we've built a statewide network of black and brown organizations that are working to empower our communities to, to be more civically engaged. And so in this way, we've been really building up um, our uh, statewide power to, to make some changes. But I think one of the strategies that um, in a predominantly white uh, state that I think has been uh, effective for us is that you may not be able to impact the way elections, um, the results of elections, if it's just working within your own community. But what we've learned is, but you, uh, if that was the case and we were just trying to turn out black and brown voters, then I think that uh, there's no way for us to win here because our numbers are so small. But it is the strategy here in Wisconsin is about changing the hearts and minds of allies. And it is about influencing allies to, to see and to, to vote the way that we think uh, would most uh, impact and, and uh, support our communities. To give you an example, a couple years ago, we've been working on this campaign, but f- about four years ago, we started this campaign on no cops in schools. And at that time, it was basically just four young people, a couple of us in the room. And we really were just saying, like, no, we don't want cops in schools. But after four years of every week showing up and and organizing and mobilizing people, 
Four years later, no matter which uh, local election, candidate platforms, or whoever was running for office, they could not run without making a statement in a stance on cops in schools. And so we were able to impact people in that it w- it became an issue that everybody had to answer to. And so that really shows you um, what organizing um, can do and uh, the strategy of we may not be able to get enough votes and you can create um, uh, campaigns that really focuses on changing the hearts and minds of people. And that's that was a campaign that I think really showed that. At first, I mean, of course, one of my um, strategies in organizing is um, as a Hmong person or as a Southeast Asian woman, like I, I believe like whatever you do, like do it in your community first. Like, because I know what it means to be a Southeast Asian woman. I know what it means to be a Hmong woman. And so if I'm going to organize, like, let me practice and try this out and see if it works. And so one of the things that if for those of uh, for people who don't know a lot about Hmong people, one of the things that we're really good at and excellent at is political organizing. Uh, we can turn. Yeah, we can turn out uh, votes and we're highly organized, but. Also, my people like love politics because I think that we, as displaced and as minorities um, from, you know, I mean, wherever we've been, we've been displaced. Um, we have a hundred year old history of being displaced people from China moving to Southeast Asia and then moving to the U.S. And so I think that we've had to engage politically to stay alive. And so we've brought that with us to the U.S. And there's a lot of interest in the Hmong community uh, to run for political office. And so since we started our program, our civic engagement program in uh, 2016, we've been able to influence like at least 10 different women to run for office. And uh, many of them have won. And so we took that example and said, oh, you know, if we can help to educate and inform people about the process of uh, local governments and about the processes of running for office, I, what what would that look like and, and how impactful would that be for our community? And so that's become one of um, our area of interest. I think that no matter, um, even if it's just Southeast Asian women this year, I think that we have great potential to impact um, a lot of feminist uh, women of color throughout the state of Wisconsin and to support their uh, running for office. I agree. I'm all about getting more people like us in office, especially the women. And I think that goes back to what we originally started with, that you're a strong believer that those who are the most deeply impacted must be at the forefront. It all relates back. So keeping with how you help women, how you inspire women, uplift women, you were able to name a plus one for the She the People list, and you picked Chai Moa. Why did you pick her? So when I came into, um, I picked Chai Moa as my uh, plus one because when I came into nonprofit, I didn't know what I was doing. But I was a little bit older than Chai. Chai was about 18 years old. And this 18-year-old teen mom came in and taught me how to do nonprofit accounting and how to keep records. Um, And since then, I mean, it's been 20 years. um, Since then, she's just been amazing. She's, there's nothing that you can't, that you can, uh, there's nothing that you give her that she can't do. And so 
I always look at that and I'm like, how amazing to be 18 years old and know more than me, number one, also be a teen mom. And then throughout the years, just seeing her um, become this amazing leader, not only for her, uh, not only um, within um, the nonprofit world and and the feminist among women's movement, but for fa- for her family and for my family and for the community. And so as a teen mom went into like uh, working and, and building her own leadership to now being um, elected an elected official in her county, being a person, an Asian American person in central Wisconsin of all places, making impact um, on communities of color. She's amazing. The epitome of what I saw my mom be, like the mom, the dad, and the leader. And so I'm really proud to be it to have her in my life. Oh, that is just so beautiful. All right. I want to move us into our final question, our signature question that we ask all of our guests. And I'm really excited to have your advice on this, considering everything that we talked about. What advice do you have for the brown girls out there listening saying, I want to be just like her? So if you're a brown girl and you're listening to this podcast, my advice to you is to find your passion and, and do, do what it is that you love. Because after 20 years of organizing, what kept me um, here and centered is I always went back to what I love. And that's the love for my people. No matter what happens in your life, never lose yourself to anybody in anything. Always try to find your center and come back to that. And that sometimes the best leaders are not the ones who are often propped and are not often are often not the ones that people think are leaders, but are just people like you and me and that we can be the leaders for ourselves. That is great. That is great. It was so wonderful speaking with you. Just thank you so much for your time and everything that you do. If you have a moment, please take the time to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay up to date with us on the BGG website, www.thebgguide.com, and on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. The BGG Podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. You can find them on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMN Media. Until next time, brown girls. Ethnically Ambiguous is a podcast about the immigrant minority experience, but in a fun way. What does that mean? Your hosts, Iranian-American Anna and Syrian-American Shireen, walk you through being a modern Middle Easterner in today's climate, but with a humorous twist. They discuss growing up with immigrant parents and also tell you stories from history that will help you make sense of all the news coming out of the Middle East. Their guests include immigrants and people of color to discuss their experience coming to or growing up in America. Some topics covered include discovering sexuality within immigrant families, being raised as an outsider, stereotypes about Middle Easterners that may or may not be true, representation in television and film, and more. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.